Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast. I'm Jenny Bully. On today's podcast, we're talking about Crawley's foremost existentialists, The Cure. With me to talk about The Cure via three happy, sad, sad, happy, significant moments, their 1979 debut, Three Imaginary Boys, their 1980s triptych, 17 Seconds, Faith and Pornography, and The Cure Prop Renaissance in 1985 with Head on the Door, are the writers Victoria Siegel and Keith Cameron. Hello. Hello. Uh, Hello. So, over in 1979 suburbia, youthful angst and alienation rung rife amongst Britain's indie bands. In Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures, The Special's debut, Susie and the Banshees' Join Hands, The Clash, The Buzzcocks, and on and on. So, Keith, what's distinctive about The Cure's suburban angst on Three Imaginary Boys? Well, The Cure, I think, were the real sound of the suburbs. And when I say suburbs, I kind of mean that as a catch-all for small towns, of which Britain is comprised mostly, really. Few, yeah. you know, relatively few people are lucky enough to live in cities. Most of us le- live in the uh, the wastelands in between, and that's kind of what The Cure articulated, I think, in that mm-hmm. first album so brilliantly, because um, everything in a suburb moves a bit slower, people are a bit further apart, you don't have the excitement uh, that the interaction in a city brings. And Three Imaginary Boys really got the stultifying uh, ennui of living uh, in the, in such, as, uh, such a place. And the, you know, the cure came from Crawley, famously enough, but Crawley is pretty much the same as many other towns in Britain. And uh, I think that really chimed with lots of people. And the first album has comprised lots of, of expressions of that ennui. Uh, the title track, Three Imaginary Boys, gets it very well. And they also dreamt up these little psychodramas, such as, you know, So Killing an Arab, which is a yeah. precy of a, an existentialist book by Albert Camus. Yes, even though I think uh, Robert had to hold a press conference at one point to explain that it was Camus and not some terrible... Uh, exactly, some, some, in, indeed, some, uh, some uh, jihad that yeah. he wanted to, uh, to wage. So they were either expressions of, of you know, inner boredom, you know, the lyric, it's always the same, comes up you know, several yeah. times in Cure songs like you know, jumping someone else's train and 10.15 on a Saturday night. And that's a case in point, 10.15 Saturday night is a little kind of sort of mental sort of psychodrama about, you know... Repetition. A, a, exactly, and, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, they were, their music, I think, was kind of... Uh, it was edgy, um, but the, mm-hmm. the edge wasn't really finding an outlet in anything that, 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 you could, you know, that you could use to kind of be exultant or celebratory. They were kind of like a bit like an emo version of Wire, so they were kind of snarky, but it was, uh, yes, I'm bored, but I'm also really bored of you not talking to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really bored of all the people that surround me all the time. And the, so there was, there's this kind of real sort of hermetic aspect to their music. You know, they feel, they, these songs kind of feel trapped, you know, like grinding yeah. halt. Is Everything's coming to a grinding halt, you know, no sound, no life, no people. Yeah. And I think because so many people understood that as part of their you know, everyday inner experience, you know, life is pretty boring at, uh, at yeah. root. For most people, and uh, that's why I think these the songs worked so well. Yeah, and we will no doubt come back to this again and again. But there's a really high emotional content in that, as you say, it's not anger necessarily or kicking over the statues. No, and the, and the, I think crime. the contrast with, with a band like Joy Division, with the Cure, often compared to um, contentiously at various points. But there was a kind of heroic aspect to what Joy Division were doing. You know, it was like it was a real kind of alpha male kind of type of expression that Ian Curtis was embodying, whereas Robert Smith yeah. really wasn't. He was kind of almost cowering retreating yeah. within, you know, which I think, which again, I think is, you know, as amazing a band Joy, as Joy Division were. I don't think many people could really aspire to be Joy Division, whether they would even think that was a good idea in terms of how people responded to their music, whereas The Cure seemed a far more relatable prospect, I yeah. think. 
and you know the three imaginary boys is that brilliant they're kind of still a punk band but they they're you know they, they realized i think quite early on that they weren't very good at being a punk band they weren't very, they weren't hard as individuals yeah. you know so the kind of three imaginary boys captures them kind of halfway between punk and, and something else which is the something else is ultimately where they ended up going yeah so fiction's chris parry smuggled the cure at night into the studio where the jam were making all mod cons and the cure recorded the album with little time or budget for overdubs and fuss and you can really hear that kind of youthful exuberance and lack of hesitation do you think victoria Oh, yes. I think they'd probably wish there'd been slightly more hesitation in <laughs> later life. I mean, Robert Smith's been really hard on the record, and particularly on, I think, has, Meat Hook and Object. He's, I think he's identified them both as his most hated Cure <laughs> songs. But um, there's a sense of that energy of throwing things around to see what, what sticks, what they can do, what they can do with the limits, as you said, Keith, of the world that they live in. And they're really sort of um, trying out things. That's quite stylistically diverse. It does feel like a, a sort of... Um, compendium of stuff rather than necessarily a entirely that hermetically sealed thing that they yeah. got later even though it's from a very specific location and it's all done so fast it's what three sessions three evenings work which and as you say the record's kind of all over the place stylistically so you know it's quite an achievement to record your debut that fast i think yes and they were but they were kind of under duress i think a lot of the stuff mm. that's on the finished record it wasn't their choice necessarily of songs, and, and Robert Smith yeah. know, thought that the original thought that Three Imagine Boys didn't necessarily give a an accurate depiction of what the band were like at that point. So the, the, the first album was created under under a degree of strain, I think. You know, and I think a lot mm. of a lot of bands make their debuts in a in a sense that they're still kind of looking for what they want to to express and how they want mm. to come over. So that, that the first record is a is a kind of transitional yeah sound in a way because I mean. Uh, from this point onwards, creative control became really important to Robert Smith, didn't it? Well, yes, it did. Mm. And he um, he made sure that he had creative control for the second album because mm. he was so unhappy with how the first album had uh, had come out. And, uh, you know, there was some songs, as, as Victoria said, mm. I think World War, Meat Hook, uh, which, you know, the, the cover of Foxy Lady, yeah. um, which was, you know, he was, I mean, he was a big Jimi Hendrix fan, but I don't think he necessarily wanted people to, to be... Yeah. Uh, to remember him as you know, that's how he wanted to be presented in his, to the world on, at the very outset. No, see, so he wasn't very he wasn't very happy about that. And even the sleeve, which I puzzled so hard over as a teenager, had, had said nothing from the band, did it? it was, apparently not. Apparently, no, apparently so. Shame. All these people who are trying to work out which one's Robert and which one's <laughs> Lowell, right. and which ones which one's there Michael. Is a, or, or, it's a standard lamp, a fridge, and a Hoover. And a Hoover, <laughs> yes. So draw your own conclusions. But um, apparently, that wasn't the band. Were had nothing to do with it, and we're very unhappy about it as well. <laughs> So, Victoria, were there any kind of germs of the future in Three Imaginary Boys, do you think? I think you can see that they have got a very competent pop songwriter in their ranks, um, even though it's not a fully developed thing. And obviously that 10.15 Saturday Night's Kids Sing is a very atmospheric reflection of, of that sort of ennui and misery that they'd really blow up into onto a huge scale later on. They certainly do. <laughs> they really do. Um, I think it spooked them as well that the reception to the record wasn't maybe as positive as they'd hoped I think maybe that the, the the review I think they were particularly upset by Paul Morley's review which is why they ended up doing the desperate journalist uh, appeal session where they took right. grinding halt and basically took the words of this critical review and I think there was a sense oh, that's true, and, and yeah. put put them in as a you know, it's, it's, it, which is a terrible thing to do on appeal session really it's, you've got you're the ear of a nation and you're going to you know kvetch about having a terrible yeah. review but I think it really did bother them they might not be seen as being entirely serious as 
seriousest joy division or whatever, you know, just... Yeah. And I think maybe that really forced them on. You want serious, we'll really show you how serious <laughs> we're going to be. We, we don't want to be seen as lightweight or as a pop band. And there was a conflict of interest, really, in Chris Parry's position. I think that's, mm. that's quite important to note because Chris Parry, was, who produced the first album, was also the Cure's A&R man, and if not then their manager, then very soon would also be the manager. So it's a huge... I mean, you shouldn't have your A&R man and your manager as the same person. That's a terrible idea because the manager should be defending the band against the record company, but Chris Parry also worked for the record company. And, you know, no no slight on Chris Parry. Obviously, his job is to try and get the most commercial product out of the band because he's working for the record label, but those, you know, impulses are not going to be the same as the artist's impulses, and they certainly weren't in in Robert Smithson's... Okay, so he was determined that after the first album, he, he you know he insisted that you know if we're going to carry on with this, I'm going to be I'm going to have control of what's of what the second album is going to sound like, and he very much dictated that. And in in collaboration with the producer on the second album, the yeah. Cure, you know, really significantly changed. Which brings us nicely to 1980, and uh, that second album was 17 seconds, and we're kind of lumping together Faith from 1981 and Pornography from 1982. Because once Three Imaginary Boys had been repackaged for America as Boys Don't Cry, which often confused me when I was younger, I thought that was The Cure's debut, but it was not. That was just the American release. But they did feel like a kind of new wave band in the making. And instead, as you say, they descended into this incredibly sort of into the dark stuff with this really bleak trio of records. So what happened, Keith? Well, I think what happened initially was that Robert got a producer who he could really work with and who was prepared to indulge his darker vision. Mike Hedges was that man. He was a producer as opposed to merely being the engineer. He engineered uh, Three Imaginary Boys, but now he was uh, Chris Parry was uh, was no longer uh, in the production uh, role. So um, basically he, he reached for the art manual. Uh, Mike Hedges was basically into deep into flanging. He was into uh, echo. <laughs> as, as, you know, the, the whoosh and ping buttons got pressed a lot yeah. uh, on the, on this album. And uh, the, the dark vision takes over. And um, it was, you know, Smith seems to have been listening to Brian Eno, Eric Satie, lots of very placid, minimalist uh, mm. music. Uh, he was very much into Bowie. He'd yeah, seen Bowie when he was a teenager. He was yeah. hugely into low. And uh, so Smith's uh, vision com- combined with uh, Mike Hedges with all his, his gizmos. And um, they really focus in on the the adolescent ache, which was present in the first record, but they kind of mm-hmm. amplify it very much so on songs like Play For Today and yeah. A Forest, which, of course, becomes... Uh, their signature tune. It and, becomes their yeah. signature tune, and it, it very much has that. And also another big difference, of course, is that Simon Gallup is now in the band. Yes. And okay. Simon Gallup, the bass player, is much. I think he's a better, much better bass player than than, the, than Michael Dempsey, who was the previous incumbent. He's also better looking. Mm. Uh, they they looked better as a band, as uh, with Simon yeah. in the band, and yeah. they they definitely sounded better. And that that huge sort of you know infernal guttural bass sound that he brought. Yeah. His bass influencer was uh, he was very influenced by Jean Jacques Brunel from the Stranglers. That's that's the bass oh. sound that he was looking to get, and um, it completely fills these songs on 17 seconds mm. and uh, it makes it makes for a very darker much yes. more much more harrowing uh, experience is it right that um, robert recruited simon by forming this kind of interim band with their postman singing uh, the cult heroes <laughs> yeah. yes <laughs> <laughs> check him out on the extras that's right on, it's on, on the 17 on, on seconds the 17 extras. Extras, yes yeah it's pretty good so in 1981's faith particularly victoria there's this real sort of sense of anguished youth and and grief there i think both lol and robert had lost family members. Do you think that this is where their connection to goth 
comes from, which they've obviously denied very adamantly. Yeah, I mean, they, I think it would be, you cannot deny it's a gothic gothic record. <laughs> but, you know, it's got church bells on it, a sort of walk <laughs> church on the cover. It is about death and, and loss of faith and everything falling away. And it would, and there's a lot of, there's a funeral party, which is about as goth as it gets, <laughs> really. But it, I would I can see, you know, no bands like to be pigeonholed. You can see why they don't like they have nothing to do with the goth of later, sort of, or that, that idea of bat cave type goth. That very, yeah. They're not without their theatrical side, but I think they don't celebrate that, that sort of glamorous side of darkness. The darkness is sure. very much something they don't like and yeah. are frightened of and are, are running away from, quite literally, in the forest and stuff. They don't want to be out in no, the that's graveyard at night in being dramatic. Isn't it the inner darkness that they're afraid of, do you think? I mean, a forest, the lyric is, a running, I'm running towards nothing, and it's almost like the realisation that there is not, they're running, and, but they, they're, they're not running into, there's not, mm. there's not a physical aspect that they're, that they're running either from or towards. It is like a void. Yeah, it's kind of like a sort of mental existential void. That's, yeah. that's, that's the scary thing about it. It's like they've seen through the world's veneer, they're peeling away the layers, and it's just getting more and more nothing there's nothing underneath it and they keep going and uh it's really dark and scary, scary. Absolutely. and certainly that the, the recording sessions were incredibly bleak weren't they the atmosphere in the studio well mike hedges said that the reason he didn't produce another cure album after that well after he didn't thing. produce he didn't produce pornography it was because he he was so depressed after the finished making faith he said practically had a nervous breakdown and he was just a producer. <laughs> Imagine what it was like to be in the band. I mean, there's a, th- there's a sense, definitely at this point as well, this was, this was 1981 when they made this record. I mean, Ian Curtis died the year before. And there was almost, I mean, it wasn't just The Cure that I've said this at the time, the Echo and the Bunny Men, Comsite Angels, other bands of that ilk from Britain at the same time. There was almost a sense that because Ian Curtis had died, you really had to, you really had to, it sounds terrible now, but you had to up your game in a way. You had to really prove that you were serious about this music. Yeah. And that, that you know, re- reaching for the, for the big answers, the, you know, the, the, the inner truth, you know, what, what is life all about? And so they've, The Cure Make Faith, a record that completely almost ca- doesn't really play to any of their strengths that they've deployed up until that point. You know, the edgy guitars, there's, like a lot, there's hardly any guitar on many of these songs. You know, Smith starts mm. playing all the keyboards, on a couple of songs there's nothing but keyboards and he really you know they're obviously going for the you know for the heavy statement and it took a lot out of them and what happened yeah. after that what, what the album that comes next is uh, if you don't like get what you're going for on faith then you know what happens after that is, is where yeah. it gets really frightening and what happens after that is 1982's pornography a record that opens with the words it doesn't matter if we all die it's less where robert's writing really peaks is this a benchmark for cure albums victoria it is a benchmark I think it's the, the one where they utterly they're world builders then that is the first world they really build that's completely I think sealed I think in 2004 when they made the self-titled Cure album I think Robert Smith mm. said that they could have easily called pornography the cure because it's so <laughs> entirely what they were at that point and what they were wasn't you know they weren't in a particularly good state I think they were in a no definitely not <laughs> um, I think there was a lot of Robert Smith has talked about you know recording the songs and writing the songs in the toilet of the studio. The disgusting That's right. to get the to most get the most horrible. debased and filthy yeah. sort of vibe you can possibly get. He said, didn't they have this kind of mountain of empty booze bottles and cans in the studio? I think they decided that mm. after every they wouldn't throw anything away. Yeah. They just pile up all the the rubbish in the corner. So <clears throat> at the end of the album session, there was literally a mountain. Of yeah. beer, uh, beer cans, to bottles. How grim it had been. But yeah, they were mm. they were they were drinking an awful lot, and yet 
there was an amazing amount of uh, catharsis um, around this album in terms of its creation. But it, what impresses me immensely about pornography, I mean, I think it's a, it's a stunning statement, a stunning record, mm. is that the writing is so precise. A lot of the lyrics, they sound like it's automatic. It sounds like it's automatic stream of consciousness writing. It may or may not have been completely, but the way that the lyrics are enunciated and the vocals, they're so precise. He knows exactly what he's saying. He knows exactly yeah. what he wants to say. The lyrics to hundred years, which are you know, a hundred years yeah. of blood, crimson the ribbon tightens around my throat. I open my mouth and my head bursts open. Um, <laughs> All together now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's an incredible. He's not just ranting. It's driven. Yeah. There's a, there's a real vision at the heart of it all. And I think a lot of the bands who followed the, in the Cure's wake made the mistake of just thinking that they could just throw it around, you know, sort of yeah, some... sh- schlocky uh, mm-hmm. vernacular and it would, it would be impressive and it would have the same sort of impact. But um, I think pornography really proves that, that, you know, even at this heightened state of uh, of distress, as they were per- increasingly personally between them, that they could produce a, a, an utterly distinctive, magnificent piece of work. And it's also it's engineered and produced by... Uh, Two members, two future members of Johnny Hates Jazz, which is quite remarkable. <laughs> Phil, Phil Thornley mm-hmm. and um, Mark Nosito are, both became members of Johnny Hates Jazz. Right. So we have, we have, uh, wow. we have that, that's what happened. <laughs> that's how, that's how bad they took it. Yeah, I think. Um Victoria, there was a review at the time, Adam Sweeting referred to pornography, saying, frankly, it's unhealthy. Is that a good way to look at it, do you think? Um, I think it obviously was unhealthy on yeah. a personal level for them, and, 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 and as I said, physically and mentally. But with any, any art that, that is that bleak, there's always an element of comfort to it. And uh, you can't say that they're repressing their emotions. They are no, expressing cannot. it, you know. Yeah. And uh, if it was just a hideous yowl of anguish in a corner... It, as Keith said, it's so beautifully put together. That, yeah, that, it really connected that it, with people. It really connects with people. And uh, is it more healthy to say this is the state of the world? Is it, you know, rather than glossing over it, you could say that they're just saying what's there, what they've seen. Yeah. They've seen beyond. Robert Smith said that they were watching all kinds of kind of really disturbing film and, you know, the books they were reading, as 20-somethings do. You know, they were out to mm. to reach the depths themselves weren't they and that's well, I, I think that you know that's one of the reasons the album was called pornography i mean it, yeah. was, it was about extremity of uh, feeling and, and expression and without any yeah. kind of boundaries really but yes the, some of the lyrics you can tell they're one, uh, stroking your hair as the patriots are shot <laughs> <laughs> what was, that's, it's you know it wasn't it wasn't you know it's not watched with mother at all really <laughs> it's not yeah but they but they bro- it totally broke them i mean they broke up yeah. on tour um, yes, it all came to a head when they toured. It, it did. And record, they, didn't they? They, they, uh, they broke up in Strasbourg, I think, when they, and Robert Smith went home and his father sent him back yeah. uh, because he said, said, there's people who've paid tickets, people have paid money for tickets, you get you know, get back on that tour and finish it, I don't care what's going on. Quite so right. Smith sort of, you know, shuffles off and eventually they, you know, they do another two weeks and uh, and, it, and they finally break up in, in Brussels. Mm. Strasbourg and Brussels. Oh. Yeah, it significant. Was, it was where it was all happening then, and it's where it was all happening now. And too. didn't um, didn't Robert Smith take himself camping after, after he yes. went? Yeah, yeah. He, he 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 went for a, a head cleansing. Uh, well, if that's not indicative of psychic in collapse, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, if you want to hear any of the Cure music we talk about on this podcast, head over to the Mojo Innovators podcast playlist at Apple Music. Uh, This week on Mojo Innovators, we're talking about The Cure, who by the mid-80s had recovered from the trio of albums that almost broke them to stage an unlikely renaissance as pop stars. So, Victoria, in 1985 and Head on the Door, how was this one different? It was the culmination of a process that started with 
uh, in the period post-pornography with that Lake District yeah. camping trip. <laughs> um, I think they'd seen that pornography was a dead end, basically, that they couldn't go any further. They drilled down as far as they could yeah. go with that and they'd found the most nastiest deposits of human nature and really there was nowhere else you could really keep going with that. Um, I think Chris Parry, or the label, said that challenged them to write a pop song, which sounds like a hideous, sick a bit. joke. What sort of mm. pop song could you possibly come up with after that? But he rose to the challenge. And I think he kind he wrote Let's Go, Let's to, go bed. to Bed. Yeah. And I think he uh, found in himself that he actually did quite like writing those songs. That, yeah. that, that, so, so they moved from uh, Let's Go to Bed and The Walk and uh, The Love Cats, which was obviously <laughs> threatened to be a novelty yeah. <laughs> albatross around the uh, neck. But um, I think by the time they got to the head on the door, he'd worked out a lot of the experimental side of it. And it, In Between Days is probably as classic a pop song as the, you know, they yeah. could write without going into something a bit blander. So it's absolutely the, the, the peak of their pop yeah. mountain, I think. And it's also the beginning of their um, uh, collaboration with Tim Pope, isn't it? By this point, they start making videos with Tim Pope, which was, you know, MTV... And everything, it was a very um, commercial move. Well, it was a very good move, really, mm. because it helped people realise that almost in spite of themselves, The Cure were a great pop band. They brought, I think those videos brought aspects out of Robert's character that were more, that obviously had always been there, but the more playful aspects, the more subversive aspects that were, that simply weren't weren't apparent to many people up until that point. And, their, mm. you know, their videos up until that point really hadn't really been very good either. Like the video for The Hanging Garden, I remember, is deeply, <laughs> deeply uncomfortable With to watch. the statues moving around. Uh, yeah. Indeed, yes. Um, but it's not as good as that makes it sound. <laughs> um I mean, an important thing, obviously, was the fact that Simon Gallup left initially after the after the breakup of, you know, when yes, the band broke up yeah. on the pornography tour, Gallup left. And he's always, you know, him and Robert have always had a sort of, you know, a quite a, sort of, a, a strong bond, but it's obviously at various yeah. points has become quite uh, strained. I think they had a huge row over an unpaid bar bill. It could well have been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just that thing. Um, but by the time we get to the head on the door, Simon has rejoined. Yeah. And I think that's hugely important because the album that came before that, The Top, was a bit of a mess. I mean, it was taking aspects of the sort of the pre-pop cures. So you got the, you got the Let's Go to Bed, the Walk, and uh, Love Cats, mm-hmm. and then the, you got the top, and they have a band together again. But it's really it's it's all a bit you know it's almost a bit try hard. Clearly, the LSD consumption was still uh, was go, was going on yeah. at this point because all the songs are just a bit sort of sprawling and a bit messy and a bit bitter. But Simon Gallup rejoins, and suddenly everything seems to fall into focus. And as you say, you've got songs like In Between Days, which is just you know, which are an immense, concise expression of the pop cure, and yet yeah. the, 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 the traces of the previous band are still there, but it seems like a much happier place to, to live in, and, and, you know, even mm. though they're still singing about, you know, many sad things, um, but they're doing it in a way that's really, that there's, a, there's a joy in the heart there, you can, you can definitely sense that. Yeah, and we, we touched on their image earlier, but, you know, by this point, they've really got the, you know, mm. the cure as we know them now, the cure look down pat, haven't they? I think it's so important. I think it it's such a visual hook mm. for people. I I actually was interested in the cue without ever having heard a note of their music <laughs> because they just looked amazing. They, they did. He looks like I mean he's like a big emoji of <laughs> you know, he's like um I think that's really important as well when they started playing bigger venues as well and, and, and you know, to be that silhouette. Yeah, definitely. That, in the days creature. before big screens. Yeah, and and, mm. and um also just interviews they gave 
and and the way he presented himself to the world was deeply weird. I have found an interview in the Smash Hits yearbook where he talks about the contents of his bag, and it's really <laughs> disturbing. It's like a Snoopy pencil case, hubba bubba. Um, it's not really what a grown man should be carrying around, but that's really fascinating. It's as transgressive in its way as some of the darker things it I is. did. It's just, and I think that's possibly is a result of retreating from pornography and they've seen the adult world and they yeah. didn't like it and they've retreated into this really quite disturbing infantile state. I think in some ways it, it made them more intriguing and more disturbing. Definitely. And can we talk about Mary as well at this point because mm. so many of Robert Smith's songs are about his long-term partner, Mary, and I think that really was something that people can, you know, I certainly connected to when you were younger. I mean, there's just so much romance in The Cure. Also, it, I mean, it seems quite an exotic thing that he had this long-term relationship that he would talk about a lot. Yeah. But it did. It gave rise to some, you know, beautiful songs later on. Uh, disintegration and Absolutely. Love Song yeah. is, was their wedding. That's right. His wedding present to her. Um, Cheapskate. Yes. <laughs> There's that fantastic yeah. interview, isn't there, in, yeah. in Flexi Pop magazine, which maybe slightly predates mm. the period we're talking about, but he's, mm. but obviously him and Mary were still, were, were very much... Uh, uh, a permanent item even at that point and um, there's a picture of Robert up a tree and Mary's, at the bottom. Right. Mary's hugging the tree at the bottom and they talk about the fact that they go to a, they go to the park together and sort of watch old people walking along and it basically makes them really wish you know wish they were old they're oh. looking forward to being old you know because the world moves much more slowly when you're old yeah. apparently <laughs> <laughs> yeah who would know <laughs> but I think the great thing about the cure at this point as well I think yeah. it becoming a happier prospect for, for, for all concerned I think it's, it's down to something as simple as the fact there was more of them and um, I think he enjoyed the fact that it was more of a social aspect yeah. you know with more members uh, around you know you, so if you're falling out with somebody in the band, yeah, it kind of you're dilutes not, you're not, the tension. So it? if he's falling out with Simon on the pornography mm-hmm. tour, who's he going? He's, he's going to have to hang out with Lol again, <laughs> and um, you know maybe maybe Lol wasn't up to it at that point. So but when there's when there's more people in the band, he's got Paul Thompson in the band, he's got uh, you know, Boris Williams. Is the, is That's the, right. Is he the appears for the first time on Head Indeed. on the Door. So mm-hmm. you know, suddenly you've got other mates and stuff. So if one mate's pissing you off, you can go and hang out with the other mate. And you know, yeah. so there was definitely a sense that the Cure were they. You know, I think their reputation for being hedonistic party animals, I think it really kicks in at this point because I think they were actually aware being, you know, they were on tour, they were drinking a hell of a lot, but I think they were probably having quite a good time as well. I mean, I interviewed them slightly Mm -hmm. later on the disintegration tour and, you know, that was... For a band that sang such unhappy music, you know, ostensibly, they were having having a great time sort of being together, you know, and uh, it was was very noticeable. I think that was a big change. My favourite song was the, um, the story about the blood... It's the one with the kind of flamenco guitar and the kind of, the sort of religious sacrament lyrics, except apparently it's about a Portuguese red wine that, whose name <laughs> translates as Blood of Christ. <laughs> so, Keith, what's sort of distinctive about Robert's songwriting around the Head on the Door and the pop period? Well, I think Head on the Door, it definitely assimilated the pop experiments that he'd been doing prior to, to that, you know, yeah. with uh, The Walk and um, Love Cats, etc. But he did it in a kind of more a way that was more palatable to to a, to a rock audience and certainly to to a rock band, you know, it's a full on multi member big haired cure monster is, is yeah. taking shape, and the, but the songs are really uh, concise and, um, and and compact, and I think, you know, it, it kind of throws everything at the wall, uh, tunes, uh, tears, big kisses, but the, <laughs> I think in a way it really it was almost a bit too buttoned up, and the the record after the head on the door, which was kiss me, kiss me, kiss me, which mm. was a Massive double huge album, hit for them as well. Huge hit. That's the record that really broke them in America. Yeah. And the best stuff on that record 
is Catch, Hot, 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 Why Can't I Be You, and mm-hmm. Just Like Heaven, which I think is kind of the, the zenith of, of, this yeah. whole, of this whole approach. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, an amazing song. Those songs really have broadened out the, um, that aesthetic template of, of The Cure that had previously been sort of nailed on, on pornography, almost to, to a point where they couldn't yeah. really go any further. And the, the sound on, on Head on the Door and Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is so different to the sound that's on pornography and Faith and 17 Seconds because that's such yeah. a processed... In a way, it's a, it's a real studio sound not that these, not that those other records weren't studio records, but they're far more natural sounding, far more live sounding, yeah. and you do have the sense that a band could play those songs live and and let rip. Whereas I think the, the, one of the reasons that the pornography tour was so oppressive was because mm. it was quite hard to play those songs and and see any way beyond them. And Robert said of Head on the Door, didn't he, that they had a much more kind of distinct plan for the sound and for what happened in the studio as well as the songs. So there's a great quote from him talking to the Guardian where he said by the end of Head on the Door and there's sinking which is a sort of slight return to the the, the more kind of dirgy numbers but much more beautiful and he says we must cry by 6pm tonight <laughs> right <laughs> so exactly so they're, they're, they're planning their they're planning their despair it's yeah planned, it's, <laughs> planned, it's planned despair so lastly uh, in 1989 we get to Disintegration which is still I think the biggest selling Cure album isn't it is this the point Victoria where all these strands come together I think there is a, a synthesising of everything they've done before. I think there is a great deal of bleakness on that record. He, Robert Smith was obviously yeah. feeling like he, he was falling apart, hence the title. Everything was mm. coming to an end. He was 29, <laughs> so <laughs> it was obviously a bad worrying, scene. bad <laughs> scene for him. And he felt that it, it was all I think he'd also started taking a lot of drugs again and the, the, the steadiness that had come earlier was threatened yeah. on every level. So I think there is that huge bleakness there but he can't quite shake that ability to write a pop song either so they are it's accessible bleakness it Very is so. which is yeah. um it's it is stadium-sized bleakness as well these songs are huge they're not airless they do feel like they've got a lot of space in them yeah, and would fill a large space you mentioned love song earlier which is a, a song so you know kind of connects emotionally that i think it's, it's on the adele it's on one of adele's albums there's a cover of it and wow. i know exactly because robert needed the money <laughs> <laughs> well that's it i mean that's that, that that really does speak to how uh, how those songs translate to a, yeah. a mass audience you didn't have to be, be invested in the history of the cure up until that point to to realize what what great universal you know emotional uh, nerve tinglers these these were but he was definitely um in a in a worrying space at that point too. Uh, I mean, I, I interviewed him on the mm. disintegration tour, and it was it was quite disturbing to sort of in a way see a guy who was he was counting down. He was definitely he was you know this is one of the phases where he said, "Oh, the band's going to finish after this tour. I've had enough. Yeah. You know, this can't go on." And you're just looking at the audience, you know, ten thousand people going absolutely bananas, and uh, the the levels of devotion. I mean, I think that was one of the reasons that he got scared in a way. He'd been in America the year before that, and th- and. Uh, you know, they were driving through these sort of, you know, to these huge outdoor arenas and stuff. And you know, it was just, he was sitting on the bus, like looking out at these people and seeing kind of like images of himself being projected at him. And he just got, he just freaked, you know, he got yeah. really scared. He had not, and it was, this was only like five years after, you know, pornography. I mean, this was, this mm. was a huge, unfathomable leap to him. And, uh, but the, you know, but this, the reason it had come about was because he'd gotten so good at melding the bleak and the hopeful, which is what yeah. kind of disintegration was really. And, and you, you mentioned space, Victoria. Mm. I mean, that's absolutely right. A lot of people say this is a kind of 
they see this as a kind of underwater album or an oceanic album. But to mm-hmm. me, it always, I always think of space. And I think this was, you know, you know, the stillness of of the universe. And uh, I think this is where his boy, a lot of his boy stuff really comes out on this album as yeah. well. You know, the ma- masses of synthesizers. You know, the guitar gets downplayed relatively on this album to how it had been previously. And uh, there's a real kind of, uh, you know, a universal emptiness at its heart. And yet he is also, you know, He's combining that with the real warmth, this real, real human emotion at, at the mm. root of all. And he, you know, it kind of you can pick out songs on this record and say, well, Fascination Street, that's a lot, mm. that, you know, that could have been on pornography, because it's essentially it's a, it's a it's a raging song, you know. Pictures of you as a grown up version of the stuff on Seventeen Seconds, like in your house and at night, and Lullaby does the kind of the, the cutesy, spooky yeah, thing, exactly, but a yeah. bit more you know plausibly, I think, and uh, less. Mm. You know, less uh, almost like prone to satire, or less less open to satire than uh, than than the earlier go throughs, but it still ultimately feels like the Cure. And of course, it, the sort of the way that it mixed up the pop with the with the bleakness is what would set a template for the future too, isn't it? It did set a template for the future, and it's one that they've been attempting. In some ways, I think they've attempted to have to try and transcend that popularity of that record, and it made them mm. uh, at certain points struggle. To find a way forward, but at other points that you know they they were driven to you know to great things too, like you know obviously Friday I'm in Love, which is probably the best Beatlesy Cure yeah. song since Boys Don't Cry, and again it's uh, you know it's it's one that's that, that speaks that speaks universally. I mean, what's wonderful about the Cure, isn't it, is that they have, from that moment on they've done everything on their own terms. They don't need a manager. They don't you know they book the shows and don't do press if they don't want to, which is mostly. You know, they're a proper kind of independent machine, aren't they? I think he's very protective over yeah. the band. I think he feels that, he, as he said, he's invested most of his whole adult life yeah. in it. Why would he ruin it? Why would he do anything that spoiled or marred the Absolutely. legacy? I think he's got an eye on that, definitely. He, I think he's an admirable character in so many ways because he doesn't care about yeah. the things that he's meant to care about when you're in a huge, successful rock band. You know, you're meant to, even at this point, you know, the fact that you're so big means that you just you focus even more on the things that have got you there and you try and, yeah. you know, so you do you do do the press, you know, you do play the game. But Robert Smith just doesn't, you know. No, and as such, you know, for, for decades now, you know, he's been one of the most kind of stable and, you know, as you say, admirable characters, which is ironic given the desolation that, you know, we've been talking about five minutes ago. Yeah, no, he, he's he's a he's a true rock and roll role model, I think. Yes, <laughs> listen, that's a good place to end it. My thanks to uh, Keith Cameron and to Victoria Siegel. To hear all the music discussed on this podcast, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. If you've enjoyed it, please rate and subscribe. Next time, Danny will be here talking about Bob Dylan. The producer was Simon Barnard. I'm Jenny Bully. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.